Welcome to The Wrap-Up, a podcast that gives you the insider's look at the top stories in Hollywood. I'm your host, Sharon Waxman, the founder and editor-in-chief of The Wrap, and welcome to our special edition this week because of uh, an event that's happened in Hollywood that we really felt we needed to be talking about. The tragic shooting death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the set of Rust is our subject today, and we'll be talking with a number of experts from the Hollywood film community and from the legal community. Uh, We're going to get to catch up on also our favorite show, HBO Succession. We'll be talking with the raps Ben Svetke and Harper Lambert uh, for our uh, Succession Obsession segment. Uh, But first, let's catch up on the week's top Hollywood headlines. So let's start out here. The Marvel Cinematic Universe's Eternal, starring Angelina Jolie, Salma Hayek, and Hema Chan, is out this week, but it's been making headlines for all the wrong reasons. On Wednesday, with almost 200 critics' reviews in, the Chloe Zhao-directed superhero flick became the first MCU film to get a rotten score on Rotten Tomatoes with just a 53% average. But that hasn't stopped fans from snapping up advanced tickets for the feature. Box office trackers are predicting a huge 75 to $80 million opening. And Fandango has reported that pre-sales were strong with $13 million of tickets sold. So rotten or not, Eternals is off to a pretty fast start. That's what's going on at the box office. But now let's turn to another superhero franchise star, Gal Gadot. You know her as Wonder Woman 1 and 2. Well, we confirmed that the actress is in final negotiations to play the epic Disney villain, the Evil Queen, in the studio's live-action version of Snow White. And that made a lot of headlines yesterday, and Gal Gadot uh, posted the news story on her own Instagram, so that's probably happening. And then she made a bunch of evil queen uh, faces on the red carpet for the Netflix movie Red Notice, which she's starring in with Dwayne Johnson that's coming out right about now. So she's she'll be starring in that movie in the uh, in the live action Snow White movie opposite Rachel Zegler, who is the lead in Steven Spielberg's reboot of West Side Story. She is playing Snow White. And then in TV casting news, the lost alum Daniel Day Kim just joined Netflix's live action Avatar, the last airbender series. He will play Fire Lord Ozai, a ruthless and driven leader of the Fire Nation. Netflix is awfully busy this week. Modern Family Sofia Vergara is also going to be working with the streamer, which now owns the universe, I guess. She gets to play Colombian drug queenpin Griselda Blanco, not to be confused with Snow White, in a limited series from Narcos showrunner Eric Newman. So that's all your casting news, which you don't normally get on this podcast. But hey, we're trying new stuff this week. What can I tell you? Um, Okay, so let's talk about the Rust tragedy, which happened just a couple of weeks ago, but has really uh, left Hollywood reeling and has also riveted the attention of much of the country. Uh, In that tragic incident, cinematographer Helena Hutchins was shot dead in an accidental discharge by uh, actor and lead producer Alec Baldwin, and the director, Joel Souza, was injured. Uh, While everyone's been trying to sort through what the hell just happened here, um, there's lots of finger pointing going on uh, and lots more recriminations coming through various, various people. 
this week, the folks who had been silent up to now, which is to say the assistant director, Dave Halls, who handed Alec Baldwin the gun, and the armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, who was in charge of preparing and checking the guns, they spoke out this week through their lawyers. In a statement to the New York Post, Dave Hall said he hopes that the tragedy, quote, prompts the industry to reevaluate its values and its practices. And meanwhile, a lawyer for Hannah Gutierrez-Reed said on Wednesday night that the rust armorer was not aware how the heck live rounds got into the dummy box of ammunition. Quote, who put those in there and why is the central question, she said through her counsel. So we're going to dive deep into the questions that have been raised by this tragedy later in the program. Uh, but first, we're going to take a moment for a lighter section and talk about our succession obsession. Welcome Ben Svetke and Harper Lambert. Let's talk about our favorite show. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Hi. So I hate to go from tragedy to trivia, but um, it's drama for sure all the way around. All right, let's talk about this week's episode, which was called The Disruption. And, you know, not so much happened on the show, but there are some pretty notable moments. One of them was like, is that Ken... Roy is going on a talk show. He's embracing his evil status in the Twitter sphere and um, wanted to go on and sort of go head to head with the, the fictional talk show host who trolled him publicly. So uh, Harper, what'd you think about that part of the show? Yeah. Well, I mean, I thought that was a great example of how succession reflects culture as it's happening because Ziwe Fumuto, who plays this fictional host, um, actually has her own show called Ziwe on Showtime. It debuted in May, and she does basically what she does uh, on the show with Kendall or plans to um, in real life. So I thought it was just a great showing of, you know, how the talk space culture is looking. And then, of course, Kendall chickens out when this bombshell open letter from Shiv gets published. Exactly. Uh, so that was a pretty big highlight of the show. It's even better because he's like hiding in a room with all these surfers and she's screaming about, he ghosted me. He ghosted me. I, I, I had never heard of Z-Way before this week. Do, do you watch her show on Showtime? Uh, I have seen a bit of it, but it started out on Instagram live where she would have oh. uh, famous celebrities, especially a lot of white ones come on and sort of try to defend their status as woke allies. And it's pretty funny. Um, I think they skewered uh, that with Kendall and his tweets about, you know, feminism and women and all the ironies that that brings up. That's pretty brilliant, actually. And they stole it off a rival network show, Showtime, you know, yeah. talk about stealing somebody. So that's really funny. Ben, did you know about Z-Way? Like, Not a clue. We're, no. we're old. We're, we're, yeah. we're officially old, man. <laughs> Um, well, you know, I love, 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 loved the moment where, um, like after, you know, Kendall has been cut down by Shiv, you think, oh, he's just going to be doubled over and, you know, hiding in that closet. But then Shiv sort of steps up to her role as president of the, of Waystar. And she's about to make this very well-crafted speech about how they're, you know, going to turn the page and, and here we, we get it, right? That was the line, like, we get it. And then all of a sudden, like, at this all hands with the whole company there, this Nirvana song starts coming through <laughs> the speakers. Ben, well, that was pretty good. What'd you think of that? It was, it was great. I mean, you were 
um, Harper sort of looking at it in a pop cultural context. I was kind of interested in like a psychological context this week, trying to figure out if Kendall is manic depressive or, or what's going on emotionally with him psychologically. But it's also just such great acting. I mean, you, you sort of see him, you know, the mo he's in this kind of bubble of his own construction. And then you see it pop when that letter comes out. You just right. see him completely deflated until the very few last seconds of the show when that kind of hint of a smile comes on his face um, and it sort of turns around again. Um, I just thought it was, an, uh, it just makes me respect that actor. Uh, I, I keep feeling more. like he, that he behaves, he takes on the, the role like an addict, you know, which he is, which is you have these, these moments of high when you're, you like the most unbelievably full version of yourself, you know, and you're just, you're unstoppable and you're powerful and you've got everything, you know, you're just seeing everything positive in the world and you're just going to let all the bad stuff fall away. And then just like you said, like how that, you know, changes in a second and the guy becomes, you know, infantile almost, you know, like yeah. he's in a, you know, crouch that, Honestly, like, because the fact that Shiv said that he had gone through these emotional problems and that he was working through emotional problems, like he could have just let that roll off him the same way he let the trolling by Z-Way roll off him, you know? Now, it's, it's not since Game of Thrones has there been a show that I've been like so bummed that I have to wait another week to see <laughs> what happens next. Yeah. And I was mentioning to you the other day that I thought I'd come up with this incredibly brilliant original theory that that succession was sort of a executive suite version of, of Game of Thrones. And then I go online and see that I'm like a year and a half behind the times and people are already That's okay, figuring ben. out which like <laughs> who's a Stark and who's a Lannister and is Shiv I, I always think of it more as as Shakespeare. I just see it it feels like it has that sweep. Harper, what, what do you think about what it maps for you? When you yeah, I mean, I think it definitely is Shakespearean uh, in terms of just the sibling dynamics and sort of the slow boiling uh, dynamics from last season that you also see a bit in this episode. You know, Tom and Shiv are barely keeping it together as a functional married couple. Um, right. And that's pretty brilliantly highlighted when he kind of drunkenly suggests that he can go down as the face of the cruise ship scandal. And he yeah. expects Shiv to say like, oh no. And then she's like, yeah, it's kind of a good idea. Maybe you should sacrifice yourself. <laughs> like like ever the loving wife. Yeah, right. Exactly. And in the last uh, season's finale, they ended on such a rocky place where you didn't even know if they would, you know, be together in the next season. And it seems like the people who are sticking with Logan and Waystar are like trying to sweep their long boiling issues under the carpet, but like they're coming back. And so Kendall really is forcing them, I think, to reckon with that. Very well put. All right, let's talk about Roman for one second. Cause I, I know that last time we had, we talked about this, Zoe was on and she was talking about how Roman's her guy. Um, <laughs> I really don't care for the Roman character, but this week he did step up and said, I'm not signing this letter. Like the guy taught me how to pee or whatever it was that he said. What's your, what's your take on Roman? Well, I mean, 
I think that Roman is being very wriggly this season. He wouldn't go with Kendall against Logan uh, in the episode previously, but right. in this one, you know, he also won't go with Shiv. He's reluctant to plant his flag, I think. And maybe that speaks to why he's not very suitable to take over. He's kind of dodgy with claiming his alliances. Totally. It's kind of hard to imagine this show without him. He's kind of like to continue my brilliant, uh, unoriginal theory. He's kind of the Peter Dinklage of. of ah. This, um, okay. All right. Know, All right. Uh, it's like you remove him from the screen, it's it lose the show loses a, a big chunk of its uh, watchability. I think. Yeah, he's he's like the truth teller. He's like he's like the he's kind of the court jester. It's not even Tom, because Roman will say what's really happening. I mean, Tom is definitely comic relief, and Cousin Greg is comic relief, but it's really Roman who'll say something that's kind of savagely true, but because he's like the punk in the family, yeah. he gets away with it. He's untouchable. Like, yeah. you know, nothing can hurt him. Exactly, exactly. Well, all right. I don't know what's coming next week. I haven't really checked the logs. If you guys looked at, at what's at, at the next thing, but um, definitely it continues to be. I mean, Logan's kind of on the rise. I guess is what we can say, right? Like at this stage of the season, well, Logan's not like if the FBI him. is if, if the FBI is in his grill. Yeah, but I think that's true. So I think that that raises the stakes. But I think Ken just showed himself to be he really showed his weak spots. He really showed his vulnerabilities. And if like Shiv could take him, could, could make him a quivering mass of insecurities with a single, you know, mm -hmm. paragraph. Although Shiv, is, didn't come, Shiv showed some of her vulnerabilities as well. I mean, she's like spitting into his papers and stuff like that. I mean, that's yeah, that wasn't very mature. What was that? Yeah, you I'm looking that. forward to seeing uh, where Greg kind of goes because Huh. I don't. I don't think I'm alone in saying he's one of my favorite parts of the show. But he's totally. he'll end up as CEO. Guys, so you'll he'll end up as CEO. Says Ben. Yeah. Well, if he has those papers, do we know if he has the papers? He does. He, he does, right? That's what I thought. Tell yeah. Even Tom, where they are, or especially Tom. Where they are. Especially Tom. Yeah, those 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 interactions are particularly hilarious. Mm -hmm. Anyway, all right, cool. Well, Harper and Ben, thank you so much for joining me for our succession obsession moment of the week. We all look forward to seeing what happens on Sunday. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, you guys. See you next time. Bye. You can catch new episodes of Succession on Sundays on HBO and HBO Max. And you know where I will be at 9 p.m. on the day of. Okay, so now we're moving on to the reason we, we decided to pick up the thread of the wrap-up podcast this week, which is talking about the shooting death on the set of Rust. Joining me now to discuss this is the wrap film reporter, Brian Welk, who has been uh, front and center covering the story for the wrap from day one. Uh, welcome, Brian. Hi, Sharon. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here. And uh, we'd also like to welcome our guests, a weapons safety expert, Steve Wolf. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks so much, Aaron. Thanks for being here. So let's start with the question that everybody keeps asking, which is 
the question about live ammunition. And it's the, uh, it's the reason why a story that we broke um, last week or maybe more than a week ago now that has not been confirmed or unconfirmed that a group of the crew had gone out plinking in the desert, meaning taking some of the guns on the set and just shooting at uh, cans for, uh, for fun. That's uh, that story got a lot of attention, largely because nobody could figure out how the hell live ammunition would end up in that gun. Uh, and now there's a suggestion by the lawyers for Hannah Gutierrez Reed, and I should say this is without any evidence that there's some kind of sabotage going on here that somebody put a live bullet in, in that gun on purpose, which I should emphasize is pure speculation. So Sharon, I, I, I think speculation is a kind word for that thought. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. So we'll get to that in a second. But I do want to take a step back and let, if you would, please, um, first, like, tell us, you know, your background a bit. And then also tell us, for starters, how would live ammunition ever end up on a set? Because I think we all are struggling to understand that. Sure, Sharon. Well, I've been a, a stunt and special effects coordinator and armorer for 30 plus years. Worked on movies with uh, Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, David Duchovny, uh, you know, blown up hundreds of cars, shot thousands of rounds of ammo. Never mm -hmm. hurt anybody and of onset injuries and served as an expert witness on these matters. Uh, the way live ammo ends up on set is somebody walks into a gun store, they buy a box of live ammo, and they bring it to the set. It's pretty simple. And then, you know, they take one of those rounds, and in the process of uh, plinking or uh, sabotaging someone or whatever, you know, rumors are out there, you know, they just take one of these and they stick it in there. Now you've got live ammo on a, you know, in a gun on set. That's it. It's, mm -hmm. it's not hard to figure out physically how it happened. The real issue is why did it happen and why would someone think it's appropriate to bring live ammo to a set? Okay. So what's the answer to that? <laughs> uh, stupidity. Um, truly like, oh, well, I mean, does it, does it happen commonly? This could every, well, cause we've okay, talked to so yeah, many experts and that's what they say. Like live yeah, ammunition you, should never be on a set. That's what we've right. hearing. Live ammo should never be on the set. So, so people either don't know the rules or they don't follow the rules. Um, but in any case, it's perfectly safe. If, if there were a box of ammo on the set, if no one had put it in a gun. So someone loaded that into the gun, maybe they set that gun down. Someone else picked up the gun, didn't check it. Uh, the armorer did not check it. The first AD did not check it. And Alec Baldwin did not check it. So there were at least three opportunities where someone could have examined what was in the gun, cleared it, loaded it with whatever they should have had in there, whether they were looking to have blanks or dummy rounds. And, you know, this accident wouldn't have happened. Also, if you don't point a gun at somebody, there's zero chance of shooting them. So many chances for this to be avoided. Steve, can you speak to, for us gun naive people, just how much different a dummy round is or a blank round versus a live round in terms of what someone should be looking at and whether or not someone would have been able to tell the difference, whether that's a trained armorer like yourself or, or like Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, or if, if you're someone like Alec Baldwin, you know, is there a clear difference between these or do they look, you know, very similar? Well. Um, there is a clear difference between the three. So this one is a live round. 
It's got a bullet, it's got a casing, and it's got an undimpled primer on the back. This one looks very similar, right? It's got a bullet, it's got a casing, but it's got a dimple on the back. And if I shake it, can you hear that? Yeah, yeah, I, we okay, can hear it's it. It's got BBs in it that tell me that there's no gunpowder in there. And this one is the blank. It's the most distinctive of all. It's got a... Uh, no bullet on there, just a place for some gunpowder in there. So these are the. So three and any things. of these can be loaded into a gun. And any of these could be loaded into a revolver like this. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to be looking down the barrel, the, the shot actually says, you know, we're looking down the barrel. Then in that case, you would want to use a dummy round, so that you can see. As I'll show you right here. So that you can see when you look inside that there's something there. You can you see, that. see that. Okay. So for those who are only listening, you can actually see the glint of the yeah. You can see the, the bullet, there. bullet mm -hmm. exposed mm -hmm. through the the chamber of the cylinder there. Mm -hmm. Now so we keep hearing we keep hearing the the little details that what was supposed to happen was that Hannah Gutierrez Reed was supposed to spin the barrel for Dave Halls for the assistant director to look at. And then if I have it all right, he's supposed to then shout, he's uh, supposed to shout live gun or live gun, cold, cold gun, gun. Mm, cold right. gun, excuse well, me. That wouldn't then, work actually, right? Because when you spin the barrel here, you can't see whether it's, you know, a live ammo or a dummy round because from the side, you still see brass and from the front, you'd still see the bullet, whether it was a dummy round or a live round. So you, so from the, some from, so when you're pointing a gun at someone, you right. can't really tell from the front of the gun, whether it's a live bullet or a dummy bullet. That's correct. That's correct. You, you'll see, you'll see a bullet here. You know, you'll, you'll see that this, the tip of this, you'll see that tip emerging. That's right right here it'll be exposed So, if the armor is doing their job they need to do what then rather than just spin they the take, barrel they're taking every they take everything out of the gun okay they pick up each round they shake it they make sure that it's a dummy round they put it in the gun the gun does not leave their hands except to go into the hands of the actor the actor then may ask may i see that you've checked the gun in which case i say no problem at all I dump them out. I shake them all. I reload. So you actually them. dump the rounds out and you reinsert them into the gun barrel. No harm in that, right? It takes thirty seconds, and then the actor has the confidence of knowing that they've seen that the gun is checked. They're not. Is that what? Is that what you, Steve? That's is that what you generally do? Yeah, I, I show the actor. I say, look, once I hand this gun to you, you're responsible for what happens with it. So you probably would like to know what the condition is. If right. you lack the training, I'm going to show you right now how we do that. Here's this. You shake it. You hear that? Okay. Shake all six of these. If you're satisfied like I am, then I'm going to reload this gun right in front of you and hand it back to you. Steve, that's if you would, if you. No accidents, and that's how everybody on set can maintain the safety. It's not, instead of irresponsibility falling on everyone, responsibility is borne by everyone. So question, if you have, let's say, 
a Western like this, like this was, and there's a lot of shooting scenes and you guys right. have been working together for a number of days and maybe even doing different shooting scenes in a single day. You'll still do that every single time you. It's, 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 yeah, Sharon, it's the time you don't do it, that you'll kill someone. So you do it every time. And the, you know, my motto on safety is the right way every time. It's when mm -hmm. you depart from those rules, even just once, even just for a moment that you risk taking a life. So I'm sure you've read the blow by blow, like we all have, and we've reported that out um, to try to get as close to a timeline of them showing up at 6 a.m. for breakfast and people walking off the set and Helena Hutchins being surprised that people are walking off the set, et cetera, et cetera, till you get to the church where the shooting happened. As far as what you've read, can you put together what you think happened because we now do have the armor coming forward and putting out a couple of statements saying I did everything right. Yeah. So the more statements that come out from her attorneys, the, the worse it looks for her, in my opinion, when the attorney releases a statement that says, you know, I sought time for training. My thought was, well, why weren't you trained before you got there? What she actually meant was I sought training opportunities with the actors. That's not what they said in the statement. Okay. Once she said, I don't know how live ammo got there. Right. Why, do, why don't you? It's your set. You're the armorer. When she said, well, I wasn't watching the guns from 1130 to 130 while we were at lunch. Okay. Right. Well, it's your job to put those guns in the safe when, when you don't have physical control over them. Well, so I found that statement, actually contradictory. Sound worse. That statement she put out last night said something that sounded contradictory to me. She said those guns were locked away during lunch. And then she said, when I was away from the, the cart, for my lunch or other errands, I made sure somebody was watching it. So I was like, okay, well, were they locked away or were they sitting on the cart? Yeah, it's not somebody's job, it's your job or another armorer, another person of equal training and, and equal knowledge of what those set protocols should be. Not just, you know, find one of the PAs and say, hey, will you keep an eye on the gun cart for me? That's, that's not properly securing firearms. So when you say every statement she puts out makes it look worse for her, it's because from your standpoint, she's not following set protocols. That's correct. You, if, mm -hmm. if, you, if you haven't had time to train the actors, then don't put guns in their hands. If you haven't supervised the guns properly, then at least take the time to physically inspect them to yourself and make sure there's nothing in them that shouldn't be in there. <sighs> okay. What, what I think, go ahead, Brian. I think, I mean, I don't know if we're wrapping up or have other specific questions, but I think the big thing now, we're seeing a growing coalition of people who have talked about wanting to ban live firearms, functional firearms from sets Brian, can, can you hold it? I, I want to get that oh, question before, that before we get to that one. Yeah, because that's that takes us off this movie. I just wanted to have Steve address his thought about sabotage because it felt like he had something he wanted to say about that. Mm. And then we'll get to you if that's okay. Steve, you, I don't know if you're rolling your eyes or figuratively rolling your eyes. What uh, the idea that um, Hannah, Hannah's I, I just, attorney says I think it's sabotage. a, it's a far more sinister explanation than the more likely explanation that people were using that gun for target practice. They didn't properly unload it. They left it back on the cart and then someone picked it up. And, you know, several people handled it with none of them checking it. That's that's just a more likely explanation. Do you know, because uh, I've had people call me out because I wrote that story about the plinking with Brian uh, saying that that's not a thing. What's not a thing? That they went plinking? plinking. It's not, yeah. 
that that's not a thing that happens. I, I don't know if they did or they didn't. No, no, that just in general. I've been on sets for 30 years. I've never heard of people going out and using oh. guns for target practice. Yeah, I mean, if, if you were shooting a Western and, you know, the actors were unfamiliar with the firearms and they if they came to me and they said, hey, during lunch, could you spare 30 minutes and take me out and give me a shooting lesson? And there was a safe place to go offset. You know, I wouldn't think that that was unreasonable. But mm -hmm. then I would take the guns back and I would check them before I returned them as set guns. Got it. So that is, that is something that you you've done and is an occasion, but obviously that live ammunition then that's used would never come anywhere near the set. That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, and, and to, to your other point, you know, live guns are used on set, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of times a year without incident, you know, because right. people handle them properly for the vast, you know, majority of, of gun handling. Uh, if, if, you know, if a PA or a driver accidentally ran someone over on set, we wouldn't say we're banning automobiles on set, which say, you know what, we're going to make sure that we have a little bit higher training level uh, when we let people operate vehicles on set. But the other thing is, you know, why use a gun that's capable of accepting live ammo when you could use a gun that can only fire blanks? Given that oh. they look the same, no one's going to say, you know, you know, oh, where are we possibly going to find, you know, Western style guns that shoot blanks. Well, they're readily available. And for listeners, they look very similar. He just yeah. held up two things. And well, I, I, I just learned something because I didn't know there even was a gun that could only shoot blanks. Yeah, th this this is a you know Colt 45. It shoots only blanks. If we were to try to load live ammo into it, you know, it won't even go in. You can't load live ammo into this gun. So when there is an opportunity to use blank only guns, then that certainly should be the preference. Well, that so now, Brian, let's go to your question, which yeah, are starting to address. I, I think this is a, a big thing because people are saying, well, let's just do it in post and or yet we can it'll look fine. You know, we'll, we'll make it work and we'll figure it out, whatever the cost is. And, and I did speak with someone, another armor who had a perspective on this that you know, you're trying to improve safety protocols. And if you suddenly just make it a prop, then now you could just have the lowest paid person on, on the call sheet looking after it or doing it and you're removing some of that. But I, I, I'm curious, you know, what is your perspective and, you know, what are you losing when you're not using a live firearm in terms of the visuals or in terms of what can actually be accomplished on film? Well, the, the prop gun can be loaded with blanks, so you can still get live muzzle flash if you don't want to do that in post. Uh, so you haven't really given up anything there. You don't have the opportunity to spare hiring an armorer, because even when you're handling blanks, blanks have been fatal on numerous occasions. Right, right. So they, they, they typically are not designed to propel a bullet, but in the case of Brandon Lee's death, a a bullet, the actual projectile, had been left in the gun without anyone knowing it was there. And then when a blank was put behind it, the blank pushed the projectile out of the gun, killing him. Yeah. Um, John Hickson was killed when he put a blank gun to his head and pressed the trigger, not realizing that the gases escaping from the muzzle had sufficient velocity to push a piece of your skull through your brain. So you still have to have someone who's experienced and knowledgeable in gun safety and gun handling but you do eliminate the possibility for the most part of shooting somebody if you stick with actual prop guns 
that are designed only to accept blanks and cannot accept live ammo. I mean, that just seems like an extremely reasonable, easy, cost-effective and efficient method. Although right. that doesn't mean that's what's going to happen because not always the most logical solution is what prevails. Sure. Is that the kind of tenor of the conversation in the community of prop masters and armors right now is it, when when they're hearing these, some people like I think even Dwayne Johnson just on a red carpet this week said he would no longer use real guns on his, his movies. And is there uh, so was there what's the chatter in in the in your community of professionals? Well, really, the conversation should be about the culture on set that promotes you know unsafe behavior through cutting budgets and through rushing. Most people have the common sense to know how to do things safely if they're given the time and supported in, in so doing. But when you have, uh, you know, people rushing you, give me that gun over here. We're losing light. You know, where do we find this person? Can't we get somebody who can get these guns to us on time? You know, this kind of pressure and you yeah. exert that pressure against someone who's very young coming up in the industry without a lot of experience. Mm -hmm. You know, it's easy for these people to get bulldozed and to get over overridden. Mm -hmm. um, and this is why you know, an armorer should typically be some, you know, crusty old retired Marine who, if anyone points a gun in the wrong direction, point that gun down. <laughs> you know, like, you know, and even the, you know, the AD is like, sorry, sir. You know, whatever. Right. <laughs> right. But if you get a, you know, a 24 year old kid and they're starstruck and, you know, Alec Baldwin saying, give me that gun, you know, the, the, the corners get cut and, and there, there's a way around that. But, you know, you have to know the rules and you have to be willing to enforce them, even when people tell you, you know, that you're incompetent because you're too slow or, you know, they're going to replace you or whatever. You say, well, you know, that, that's fine. You want to replace me? Then someone else can be responsible when there's an injury on this set. But it mm. ain't going to be me. Mm. Wow. Well, Steve, well, thank you so much for joining the wrap up. I learned a lot, Brian. I'm thank sure you. we both learned new things. And I think... Um, you know, it's important to have people like you weigh in so that we understand there's, there's just a lot of random details that come flying at us. So just to have you walk us through what this actually looks like, it sounds like, it feels like it's, it's, you know, it's tactile and it's visual when you're actually, um, to see the difference between a live round, a dummy right. round, and you, see, um, you see the difference and the, and the, and the guns. Exactly. Right. Well, Real gun, prop gun, you know, well, I hope we keep listening to people like you because, um, you know, you really know what it's like live and on the set in the trenches. So thank you, thank Steve, you. Wolf, for, for joining us. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. So now we're going to turn to the legal aspect of this Rust tragedy. Of course, it remains an ongoing investigation in Santa Fe. And while no charges have been filed by the district attorney, the district attorney there has said that all options are on the table, which leads people likely to presume that she's planning on filing charges. But let's dig into the legalities of this of this situation. So to do that, we've uh, invited and are happily joined by Nima Romani. He is the president of West Coast Trial Lawyers, a personal injury firm in Los Angeles. Welcome, Nima. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks for having me. Brian, good to see you again. Thank you. Brian, why don't you take this one? Yeah, so Nima, we've had so many different updates in this, with, even within the last few days. And I think 
Now we've even seen several of the key people all lawyering up and putting out statements and things have gotten more complicated and more narratives are floating around. Uh, but, you know, what is, you know, what do these signs, you know, say to you in terms of what we might be expecting next? Well, Brian, there's several possible cases here, right? And I'll go from least to most serious. Obviously, there's a work-related injury. We're going to see a workers' compensation claim. Obviously, there's going to be a civil lawsuit, a wrongful death lawsuit. My friends at uh, Brian Panish's firm are handling that here in Los Angeles. And But everyone's most interested in the criminal case and potential criminal charges. Haven't been filed yet. Um, well, Sharon said the district attorney is still going over the evidence, but that is what I expect will ultimately happen in this case. I do expect to see manslaughter charges. And this is coming from uh, a former federal prosecutor who's handled a lot of these types of cases. Against whom? Well, let's just start from the, I think, the folks that are most to least culpable. Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, the armorer. Her, she is responsible for handling the firearms, loading them, importantly, checking them. She's the one that told law enforcement that she checked them. Now, I know she's lawyered up like everyone else, and her attorneys are mm -hmm. kind of putting it out there that she was set up. But you know, even if you take that at face value, which is a dubious proposition, she is responsible. Blanks look different from live rounds. She is the one that supposedly has expertise in firearms, even though she's only 24 years old and been an armorer once. Her dad, apparently, who was a famous armorer, is, was supposed to train her. And she is responsible. I think manslaughter charges are appropriate for her. It's grossly negligent to handle a firearm in such a way. Obviously, she gave that uh, prop gun to Dave Halls, who also said that he inspected it. Obviously, he's an assistant director, different role. But if you represent to Alec Baldwin that it's a cold gun, that you've checked it, and you have not. And we know that they didn't because there's at least one live round and there are three other rounds. We don't know if they're live or not. Um, you didn't check the gun. You didn't do, do your job well, and you're well, playing Lima, Russian roulette with people's lives. Right. But Nima, actually, from the search warrant, the, he Dave Hall's told the cops that he did not check it properly. He actually admitted that. I don't know if that is admissible as evidence. Uh, it is admissible, but he told Baldwin that it was a cold gun. Right. right? So, so that is sort of the... There's civil negligence, which is a much lower standard, right? What would a reasonable person do? Gross negligence or criminal negligence is what you need for manslaughter. And that's a much higher standard. But I think that's met here. If you have a firearm and I tell you, Sharon, mm -hmm. I've inspected it, but I have not. Mm -hmm. And you reasonably rely on that. There's no reason why. And, and Baldwin has his own negligence. We can kind of talk about that. He pointed a firearm at someone. His finger was on the trigger at discharge. I think he's civilly negligent personally. That, and that's setting aside his role as an executive producer. He's responsible for the negligence of his employees in the course and scope of their employment. So civil, we're clear when it comes to Baldwin. But criminal negligence, if I give you a firearm, I tell you it's a cold gun, it's not loaded. I haven't even checked it. That's grossly negligent in my book. So you would expect manslaughter charges against the armorer and the first AD? I think the armorer for sure. I would also, if it were me, if it were my case, I would also charge Halls with manslaughter as well. Um, because again, that's something that had he just done what he told Baldwin he would, he would do, um, you know, Helena Hutchins would still be alive today. Yeah. And now, isn't it extremely rare, though, that we have actually seen criminal charges being filed? I think we had a, a, a surprising incident with Midnight Rider 
mean, that, that one came with, with manslaughter charges and uh, the director of that film, Randall Miller, pled guilty. But, you know, in, in past instances of this, we haven't always seen it. Um, is there a reason for that or is that, you know, an accurate statement, do you feel? Well, the reason we don't see it, and I agree, Brian, it is rare. We don't see manslaughter in these types of cases for the same reason that we don't see manslaughter charges in the majority of car accident cases where someone dies. You got to be grossly negligent, right? You got to mm-hmm. be under the influence of drugs or alcohol, you know, mm-hmm. lo- watching a movie, texting and driving. If it's an accident, that's not enough for criminal charges. But again, if you have something more similar to the conduct that I described, and that, that's what I think happened here. I mean, there's so many things that are just beyond uh, just a, a normal accident. And ultimately, it's up to prosecutors to make those decisions. These are hard decisions. But this is what I would do if I were the prosecutor handling this type of case. I mean, literally, you're responsible for this firearm. And, you know, going back to what I was saying, you are playing Russian roulette with people's lives. That is criminal negligence in my book. Let's talk for a second about the decision by Hannah Gutierrez-Reed's lawyers to put out these various statements, including floating out there that somebody sabotaged the gun for which we just discussed it on the last segment. And, and I have repeatedly reminded our staff in the newsroom, not that they need it, but there's no evidence for them saying that. So when we repeat that, uh, we should remember that there isn't any evidence of that. But why are they doing that? Why are well, they zero, saying that? Yeah, well, there's zero evidence of that, but they're you know playing lawyer and defense lawyer and advocating on behalf of their client, not in the courtroom, but in the court of public opinion, because mm-hmm. folks are really going after her right now. And really, that's really the only defense in this case that she was set up. And again, there's no evidence of that. And, you know, there's also to folks on social media and conspiracy theories. This is a setup to you know get back at Baldwin again. No evidence of any of that, but. I think the only possible defense here is that, you know, she reasonably believed that she was inserting blanks into that gun. Someone sabotaged her. Someone set up in her box of ammunition that was supposed to be blanks, inserted live rounds. And that's why she's in the situation that she did that. Actually, she wasn't negligent. She did inspect them. And then what she believed to be blanks were actually live rounds. Obviously, there's still the argument that she should be able to distinguish between the two as the armorer, but she didn't. So that would sort of qualify as simple negligence, but not that gross negligence right, um, right. that would get her convicted of manslaughter. Mm-hmm. I'd like to, to hear what you think about Alec Baldwin. So he, he, you could, you were beginning to argue that perhaps he ought to have checked the gun again, despite the fact that he was told that it was safe. Um, but then there's the the more, perhaps more uh, responsible position that he had as the producer who essentially is responsible for hiring the armorer and responsible for hiring the first AD and responsible in general for the safety on the set. What, what is he looking at potentially? Yeah. I mean, he's looking at a pretty strong civil negligence, wrongful death lawsuit against them. And um, there's several bases for that. We can kind of go through them. The first is his own independent negligence, right? There's an argument that he should have checked the gun. Um, I think that's something that, uh, will probably be tough to prove. Again, you, you can reasonably rely on the folks that are working for you, especially when they're specifically telling you that the gun is cold. Um, mm-hmm. But there's a couple things he did, I think, that were negligent. Again, I don't think you point a firearm at another human being, even if it's a cold gun, even if you believe it's not loaded, even if you believe it contains um, dummy rounds or blanks. That's just dangerous and not a not a reasonable thing to do. So that's negligent. Um, I think having your finger on the trigger, because again, 
by all accounts, he didn't intend to pull the trigger. It misfired. So again, right. that's also negligent. You don't put your finger on a firearm, regardless of whether you think it's loaded or not. So that's that. But there's a, all sorts of bases of negligence against the production company. There's live ammunition on set. They're engaging in target practice. By all accounts, the Saturday before, this gun had misfired and discharged at least twice, maybe three times. It should have mm -hmm. been removed from the set. So... Mm. So there's a couple bases of liability against the production company. There's what we call vicarious liability or in Latin, respondent superior. Again, this is all civil um, terminology, but as an employer, you're responsible for the civil negligence of your employees as long as they're acting within the course and scope of their employment. That's automatic and it's imputed to the employer. So to the extent mm -hmm. that Baldwin is an employer and he's part of the production company employment he's responsible for the negligence of his staff you can also go directly against the production company if you don't accept that vicarious liability for what we call negligent hiring retention supervision um, again you don't need it usually you automatically get there but if there's some issue then you can say well look the production company negligently hired Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. She was not experienced. They tried to cut quarters. They mm -hmm. tried to save money. They negligently supervised her and they negligently retained her after Saturday when something that she was responsible for that firearm discharged on set. And does this, do is this other kind of thing? Factor, oh, go ahead, Brian. Do, I mean, do the other factors that people have discussed about work hours or housing or all these other things that are kind of factoring into the overall discussion about this movie is that something that a a judge would take into consideration or mm -hmm. is that something that a prosecutor would try and you know bring up in, in this case or is that not necessarily relevant to that so ryan it's highly relevant to the civil case cutting corners saving money not being safe and not particularly relevant to the criminal case because civil negligence you can kind of look at entities and was the employer negligent were they unsafe and those types of things. But really criminal cases come down to the individual. Rarely is a criminal entity charged. Sometimes you see organized mm. crime or drug cartels and those types of things, but you can't put an organization in jail. So even if you charge them criminally, you're looking at civil fines. So criminal cases turn on individuals and their knowledge and their individual actions. That's why for the criminal case, we're talking about Gutierrez-Reed, we're talking about Halls and we're talking about Baldwin. For the civil case, we're talking about all the sort of unsafe conditions on set there in New Mexico. Nima, will typically insurance on a production cover civil cases? Absolutely. There's going to be um, insurance coverage in this case. There's going to be general liability. There's going to be umbrella coverage, likely for a big um, production like Number. this. Obviously, <laughs> you got to have, yeah. You got you got to have workers' compensation insurance as an employer mm -hmm. in every single state, so that coverage is going to be there. Workers' compensation, by the way, we haven't talked about it. So it's probably the least interesting. Well, that's a no-fault system of insurance. So you know, Matt Hutchins and uh, Helena's nine-year-old son, very tragic as a beneficiary. They're going to get workers' compensation benefits. That's a no-fault system. If you're injured on the job or you're killed on the job, regardless of negligence, could be your negligence, someone else's, no negligence whatsoever. You're going to get paid out those benefits. Is, and is that, is, are those significant benefits? Like, is that? No, it's a lot less, unfortunately, than um, what you would get in a civil case. So like, for instance, here in California, workers' compensation death benefits, they're usually mm -hmm. in the few hundred thousand dollar range, um, a lot lower than you could get in a potential wrongful death lawsuit. Again, because there's a no fault system of insurance, you're paid no matter what, but those payments are a lot less. I see. I see. Well, what are the some of the lessons, the legal lessons, if there are any, 
yet that you're drawing from this tragedy? Now, the legal lessons are on the civil side. I mean, you know, if you have firearms on set, you got to be more careful. You can't hire you know, respectfully someone who's 22, 24 years old, doesn't have a lot of experience, you know, and when there's any sign of danger, you got to get rid of the firearm. You can't let your employees engage in horseplay and target practice. I mean, these are weapons people can die, you know, and had folks just been more careful, you know, Helena would be alive and they wouldn't have to spend, you know, likely millions of dollars in terms of a wrongful death settlement. So lots of lessons. This can be a very painful lesson for Alec Baldwin and that production company financially. Obviously, we're talking about a tragedy and folks may, and in my opinion, should be charged criminally with manslaughter as well. Yeah. Well, Nima Ramani, thank you so much for joining us and for enlightening us about the legal implications of this case. We're going to have to wait and see what the DA decides to do, but clearly there's some real criminal liability that's potentially um, going to gonna happen as we go forward. So um, thank you so much, and we will keep our listeners up to date on all of the de- new developments in this case. Um, yeah. Sharon, and- Brian, thanks for having me. And that is it for the latest episode of The Wrap-Up. Thank you to all of our listeners. And remember, you can follow all of our coverage of the Rush shooting by going on our homepage, and you'll see all the latest stories, both in the nav bar or on the right rail there. And if you like the show, you should subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can rate, rate us and review us and let us know what you think of the pod. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.